Hello. Hey, John. How are you doing? Hi there, Dan. How's the weather out way up there? Well, this is the rainy season, and so it's uh, raining. I've noticed, frustratingly, that it rains dr- uh, during the night here a lot. Oh, yeah. And uh, I think a lot of people probably are psyched about that. If it's going to rain at some point, they'd rather it rain at night in, than in the day. But <clears throat> you The know, nighttime is, is your time. The nighttime is the right time, but I am uh, down in the, you know, I've got this creek that I'm oh, yeah. monkeying with, and I want it to rain during the day so I can be down in the creek in the day, watching the water tumble through all of the little obstacles I've built for it. And um, and lately, it's like, it starts to, it drizzles all day, but then at 7 p.m., which, as you know, in the north is sunset or after sunset now it starts to rain and it pours all night and i can hear the creek i go down with a flashlight and look at the creek but it's just not the same so today i think is supposed to be a, a big rainy day and i can go down and get in the creek you know the creek is full at the, the ground are you, is ba- are you bathing is that your sort of no, bathing in there no or? no no it's it's a cold um Wintry northwest muddy clay based creek, and I've started to notice that all my clothes are starting to smell like a creek bottom because rather than have one set of creek mud clothes that I keep in a in a like smell proof the cabinet somewhere, yeah instead, I just go down into the creek every time. Every time I want to, which is every day, and I'm wearing whatever clothes I have on, and so they all are starting to smell like the creek. And you know, the creek isn't a great-smelling place. I mean, the creek is a great-smelling place, but if you dig in the mud, if you're in the muck with your mm. mucky boots and you wipe your mucky hands on your pants, pretty soon the pants start to smell like muck. It's a There's a little – there's a muck component. <laughs> so... <laughs> I don't know what to do about that because, you know, it's winter has come here, or at least autumn, and I've yet to, normally, at a certain point, right around maybe before now, I transition out of wearing <clears throat> boat shoes with no socks, and I transition to wearing, in recent years at least, blundstones with wool rag socks, and I wear those all winter. And it used to be, you know, Red Wings with wool rag socks. But I, <clears throat> I'm i having a hard time giving up the boat shoes this year. And I keep just putting them on and wearing them out. And then it's like... Like the Sperry Topsider boat shoes? Yeah, that's yeah. right. And, you know, when I, I wear... I uh, <clears throat> Years ago, I don't know. It had to be 1984. I was uh, in Anchorage... I was shopping at the Nordstrom's half yearly sale, which was a half off winter time sale of men's stuff. And it used to be the thing in Anchorage, the Nordstrom's half yearly sale was a was a social event. You would go to the store and all the kids that were going to buy their clothes at Nordstrom half off, still I mean there's still a lot of kids that wouldn't buy their clothes at Nordstrom if they were 90% off. But whatever that group, that strata of kids that were going to buy their clothes at Nordstrom but had to wait till the half-yearly sale, everyone was at Nordstrom. You could walk around and just – and I remember you know, standing at the bottom of the escalator and it's like four or five different groups of people. Oh, hey, you know. It was like a – it was like tea in the afternoon or something. I remember – there were several years there where the Nordstrom half yearly sale seemed like it was going to become a more of a social event than a school school clothes shopping event. <laughs> and it was, you know, that was a Nordstrom we all knew very well. It was, it was Nordstrom was a local Northwest company at the time. There weren't Nordstroms everywhere. There was just, you know, there were a couple in Seattle. There was one in Anchorage. It felt like a, it felt like a. Um, I don't know, a, like a regional, like a local 
not temple exactly, but it was the nicest store in Anchorage. Anyway, I remember seeing, this was during the height of the, the preppy 80s phase, a pair of Sperry Topsiders that were red. Oh my gosh. That's a statement shoe, if I've ever seen one. Red Topsiders. And I immediately <clears throat> went and bought the Red Topsiders. Because it was a statement shoe, and it was like, all I, if I'm only going to get one thing in this whole store... It's going to be these red topsiders because they're going to turn everything into something else, something that it couldn't have been otherwise, the red topsiders. And ever since then, <clears throat> I've never not had a pair of red topsiders. I'm looking at a pair right now. They're sitting there on the floor. And then several years ago, I don't know how, how long ago it was, but I saw a pair of... Um, pink like orangey pink what would you call orangey pink yeah i'm looking at pictures of the red top siders and i'm Mm -hmm. seeing two different kinds i'm seeing one that is a what i would just say the regular leather material and i'm seeing another one that's almost almost looks like it's a suede it's got that sort of um Burnt, burnished you know what i'm saying where it's mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. which yeah, ones it's are furry what, yeah which are the ones that you're talking about i've had both dan <laughs> <laughs> of course you have <laughs> but i also have a pair that's that's orangey pink it's a it's a very in some lights you would look at it and say oh that's a very light orange and another light you would say oh no it's like a it's like a peachy it's peach mm. that's what it is they're peach well, let me say, when it starts to rain and gets cold, you're and you're you know headed out the door to go to some swim meet or some pumpkin patch, right? Um, you know, suede peach topsiders with no socks is the wrong footwear choice. There are a lot of people listening who probably think suede pink uh, peach topsiders are always the wrong footwear choice, even in the middle of summer. That's where people disagree. But I need to I need to pivot. I need to get into my winter my winter plumage. Oh. <laughs> uh-huh. And more than anything, I need to dedicate a certain set of clothes or maybe two sets of clothes that are creek bottom clothes and not wear other stuff down there because I'm ruining stuff. <clears throat> You know, I, I I asked the people on my Patreon if there was, if uh, what kind of content they wanted to see. Oh yeah, and a lot of people a lot of people were like, you know the the fact that you're off Instagram is the thing that that is the worst because that was fun. Instagram was a fun place and it was a fun place. Yeah, and they're like, why don't you show us pictures of your creek? And <clears throat> I've tried several times to go down in the creek and photo document it in a way that I could show everybody uh, what it, what's all happening. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, the camera is the camera flattens things too much. The creek is a very dynamic environment. It's got a lot of um, it's very three dimensional down there. Sure, Dan. makes sense. And uh, you take a picture, and you you don't really get the the depth and the. So anyway, I've tried, and I and I look at the pictures, and I'm like, well, that's not that doesn't represent the creek. I've tried to make videos. Have you considered doing one of those like 3D, you know, ones you, you, where you you take the camera, you film it in 3D, like they do on Google uh, Maps, and you could sort of walk walk the the creek that way. Oh, and, you know? how do you do that? I don't know how you do it. Well, I mean, I'm not, you know, <clears throat> I'll hire. Oh no. You know, I'll do put my VR headset on and walk down in the Creek. Oh no, wait, the VR headset doesn't take video. It doesn't. Well, that that's what it should be, Dan. I should go down there with a 3d yeah. VR headset and walk all around and then, and then make a Google map of it. But, yeah. Because I think, yeah. I think what your, uh, your patrons are wanting is the ability to sort of explore on their own explore the whole property you know, make their mm-hmm. way around. And that's what I would want. 
if I was paying for that kind of content, I don't want to just a picture of the Creek. I want to be able to feel like I'm getting down in there myself, getting dirty yeah. the way you do. smell a vision Yeah. Maybe I should invite, you know, little tours, five people come down in the Creek and everybody can help me pick up these big rocks that are too heavy for me to pick up myself. Oh, that sounds interesting. That could be like a, a prize. Like someone could win the privilege mm-hmm. of, Come of help me. you know, helping you move <laughs> your, your rocks around. I would imagine yeah. you would rent something like one of those like uh backhoe loader type things. Yeah, to, they like won't little... fit down in there. It's a very natural environment. It's very topographical down there. You can't get a backhoe in there. What about one of those little ones like the cat company makes? Can't like even you... get the... No, you can't get one of those down there. You can't go. To... You couldn't go down there on a mountain bike. Could you use too, could you use chains on the back of your uh, bronco and just tow the rock out? You could if you could put the bronco in a position that was where you had any leverage in the direction you want to go. Could you use a pulley system and a lean to? You could use a pulley system. It would be you would have to build, um, yeah, a lean to the building the lean to would be the the issue Mm -hmm. the trees that are in there are many many very big trees in the ravine but they they all are mature and they all seem like if you wrapped a chain around them to they would just uh, they would snap right well not snap they you would pull them up by the roots and then you would have a like a 100 foot tree falling in a direction (laughs) that you shouldn't right sure it would be like well that that was the wrong move you know, I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to use any of the trees as a come along. There's not. It'd be nice if the ravine was full of like glacial anomalies, giant rocks that had been left behind. But I think the giant rocks are all buried under fifteen feet of leaf litter that's fallen in the in the centuries. Well, it's all stuff that I'm going to work out this winter because, you know, they've come and the, the the team has come. The team from King Conservation has come and they have started their project of transforming my ravine into a native wildlife habitat. And mm. <clears throat> in a way, I've, I'm very close to having to relinquish all control. So I'm going to have to get all this done. Toot sweet, toot de sweet. I'm yeah. gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to get five burly people down here to help me mm-hmm. throw these rocks around before it's too late. What's going on with you, Dan? Is uh, it uh, is Texas just still as beautiful and as peaceful and as as uh, lush and progressive as it's always been? <laughs> yes, they've described it exactly. No, we have um. There was a couple tornadoes earlier in the week, not where I am, but somewhere that seemed bad. But the weather that we've got right now, this is this is the start of the time of year when it's just wonderful to live here, where it's it's nice out. The weather today is like amazing. It's um, it's just like perfect. Like this is what we wait for all year, all year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And is the is autumn? Yeah. So today, like the high, I think it's going to be in the like mid seventies, which is beautiful, sunny. There's a nice breeze. The lows going down into, you know, maybe the low fifties, upper forties at night. It's really great. And that's only for a few days and it's going to get a little warmer. It'll be upper seventies and and low sixties, but hopefully it just stays like this because when it's like this, it's like you can, you finally get to wear clothing that, that looks good. Mm -hmm. You don't have to worry about like a million layers and you can just enjoy being outside. It's just wonderful. And it when lasts you say, like this for a while. When you say hopefully it stays like this, do you mean forever? Well, I mean, it would be great if it could stay like this forever. But what I was thinking would just be, you know, for uh, like not to have it in a week go back up into the 90s again. Yeah. You know. You know, you're describing your lows. Those are our highs up here. Yeah, I know. I'm very aware, of, <laughs> very aware of the difference there. Yeah. 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 <sighs> how's the, uh, how's the, how's the kids, Dan? Oh, the kids we, are, you know, we, kids we are don't good. talk about our kids on the show very often. <laughs> not, not often. No. They're good. They're doing great. How are yours, your child doing? My, my, my child, my child is doing good. 
Does your child do her homework? <clears throat> well, she's in Montessori, and so they have this whole thing of oh. like, oh, we don't have homework. Right. But I've been feeling, you know, her Montessori school is small, and it and it kind of had a bumpy period during COVID. It was <clears throat> maybe too small to absorb any major uh, kerfuffles, and there were a couple of major kerfuffles. Oh. Good, good, good uh, teachers moved away and uh, they they didn't transition to online very quickly or well at first. And so some parents moved away and the school shrank <clears throat> and it shrank right to the bleeding edge of whether or not it was a viable school. Oh, that's very concerning, isn't it? It was. And, you know, I'd, I've struggled to find the right school for my kid her whole life. The The first issue was her mother and I lived in different houses kind of across town from each other. Mm-hmm. We always put her in the schools that were closest to her mother's house. Um, but her mother worked. Is that because full- of convenience or because they were better schools or why? Oh, well, probably better schools, but also just it seems like, <clears throat> you know, when she was born, we very because her mother grew up as a hippie, and her mother's mother um, kept her maiden name, and so there was a there was a conversation right around the time the baby was born about the last name of the child. Right, and I said, <clears throat> speaking as a feminist. This child is going to have my last name. Right. I don't know what I don't know what other concessions you want, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna play around here with her having your mother's father's last name. Uh huh. That doesn't make too sense. many. It's too many steps removed, is what you're saying. Well, just you know, like yes, we're all hippies here, but let's get real. <laughs> There's there there are just some things here that I'm gonna that I'm gonna. I'm going to make a stand. Now, yeah, if you no, want, of course. If, if you want to really tilt against this windmill, <laughs> we can work it out. But I'm, this isn't something that I'm going to be like, Oh yes, of course. Mm. No, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be soft about it. No, of course. And so she was like, Oh yeah. Okay. That's right. Yeah. All right. She can have your last name. And I was like, okay, good, 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 good. I'm glad that we don't have to, I'm glad that we didn't have to come to blows over that. <laughs> And then briefly she was, briefly even, she thought, maybe I'll just change my name to your last name because why do I have my grandfather's last name? None of these names make, you know. Oh, she said, how did you react to that? She got, she, she was adopted by her stepfather at one point, but didn't take his name. Didn't take anybody's name. She's got some, some old dead guy's name. And I was like, if you want to change your last name to my name, more's the, you know, like all the better. Let's, let's party over here. I mean, my last name doesn't really mean that much. Just some guy that came from some guy, but you got to pick something, you know, you got to serve somebody. And I wasn't quite, I'm not, I, I admire people who try and solve this problem by creating a new last name. Oh yeah. Of, I know people that have done that. Like, like uh, they get people say, Oh, we're going to get married. But instead of her taking my last name or me taking her last name, we're going to create an event a brand new last name for both of us that we will both take. I think that's great. I think that's so smart and that's really what it probably should be. It probably what it always should have been. Um, except it's hard to keep a family Bible or whatever, but we don't do that anymore. And if I think I mean, of face, were... Facebook and um, the Chinese government does that for us. Yeah. Thank you. I think if I were 23 and getting married, I would say, yeah, why don't we just call ourselves the Voltrons? Well, what if you already have something built into that? And I, that's actually one of the reasons that I've heard a lot of people have decided to not change their name when they get married is like, especially if they're not getting married when they're 23, where you yeah. basically have zero like burden of legacy to get you there that you're, you know, you're in a situation where you're like, well, I can kind of reinvent myself right now without any repercussions. No, you know, it's it's not like you've been, say, a musician for 20 or 30 years and have like a, an entire career backlog for yourself, you know? 
But even that, I feel like it, even that mentality, I, I feel like is a relic of past times until very recently. I think if tomorrow I announced that my new name was Johnny Voltron, people would go, huh. Well, but yes, but you're also in, you're in the entertainment industry. And I think that's expected. I mean, you know, who, what, oh. what, the, the, and in my experience, you probably have more experience. But in mine, the more famous you get, the more frequently and strangely you you change your name. I mean, you've got, you know, Prince who right. changed his name to a symbol to get out of a contract or something. But still, like he he did that kind of thing. You get the P Diddy always changing his name to different things. Kanye yeah. just changed his name to Yee Yee. Uh-huh. Um, Cher, just the one name, Madonna. Right. Not even, not, I don't think she was born named Madonna. That might not no. have been her first name originally. No, really? No. Well, I mean, I'd have to check that, but. Chicharoni. Yeah, Chicharoni. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, but any, I mean, these days it just seems like, yeah, you, everybody's free to ride their machines and not get hassled by the man. But. But in this moment, in the moment that our daughter was born, there was a kind of, you know, we were we were shoring up some first principles because we weren't married and we were having a kid together. And there were a few of these, like, if we were married, it would have been a conversation we had a long time before. But, but I think a lot of the conversation was sort of around the suggestion of, uh, I mean, I think a... a a big part of that event, the the birth of our daughter, you know, it was very loaded by with other people's expectations, other people's expectations of what it means to have a child out of wedlock mm. and what that means for everyone and whether or not I, as, an, as a musician and, uh, <clears throat> and someone that had not really held a, a, a tr- traditional job as an adult and prior to that had not really held a traditional job and prior to that had not really held a traditional career of any kind. And, and uh, was I going to be there? Was I going to be dependable? Was I someone that you could put your faith in? And, you know, my, my daughter was born in March and I started Roderick on the line with Merlin in the in the fall. We mm-hmm. did that road road work together, or I'm sorry, we did that back to work together that that spawned Roderick on the line in August or September. And so prior to her birth, I was not I, I did not have a a uh, I was not a podcaster. I didn't have an, an internet life. Uh, I was not really connected to nerd culture yet. I was just a musician and my band was on hiatus. And I'd, uh, I'd, you know, I'd start, well, Twitter was there. So I had, I'd become somewhat of a Twitter, early Twitter person, but it was not making any money for sure. And so all that was, it was all freighted, you know, because my daughter's mother was always a professional woman. She was a she had a, a professional career. She was a she was a solid citizen. She remains a solid citizen. And so all these questions were all getting resolved in a way that married people <clears throat> kind of work it out up front. And I think that's the danger of marriage, is you think you've worked it all out up front. And so you got none of the, so those questions aren't in play anymore. And of course they are, they're constantly in play. Uh, it's just that marriage, married people lean on the certificate or the vow until it's too late until you get to a place where you're like, well, wait a minute, hmm. what about the vow? And it's like, well, I've been evolving for 10 years. The vow, what are you even talking about? You haven't upheld that vow for one minute. It's like, oh no. And we don't have that luxury around here because we have to, we have to make new vows all the time. But putting her in school next to her mother felt like 
just as much the right thing to do as my insistence that she have my last name. It was just like, right, she's going to go to the school in her mother's district, even though her mother works and I'm the parent of record in a lot of cases. I'm the one that drops her off and picks her up or the one that less often drops her off. Let's be honest. Her mother drops her off Mm because that's early morning for Christ's sake. But I pick her up and I'm, you know, and I'm the parent that goes in for the events. And when she was in preschool, I was the parent that went because we were in a cooperative preschool so that you had to go spend at least one or two days a week. So long ago now, uh, basically sitting in a very small chair and participating in the, the screaming chaos of a room full of two and a half and three and a half year olds. So, you know, I, I was the, I was the boots on the ground, but after the cooperative preschool, we found her some, um, a different preschool. And then for pre-K, there weren't a lot of good options. So we enrolled her in this wonderful little school called Giddens, which was a private school that was like pre-K through fifth or sixth grade in an old church and all the parents were super cool and hip and beautiful and the kids were all wonderful and it was a big school (laughs) you know it was in a it was like how big well it was I guess it was the there was a church and then next to the church there had been a Catholic school and then it had been uh, transformed by this woman, Mary Giddens, maybe into like an alternative elementary school. I probably had 10 or 15 classrooms ages, you know, pre-K to, to fifth grade. I mean, it wasn't like a huge school, but it was, it was, it felt like a school inside, right? There was an auditorium, there was a lunchroom, there was an office and a nurse's office, all this stuff. And she really thrived there, but it was extremely expensive and not conveniently located for anyone. And we were like, we live in Seattle, like we're public school people, she should go to public school. And we, we enrolled her in a public school here, Montlake Elementary, which had the feeling of a small private school. Because it, it's, a, it's, it's a very old school like 1890s school, which is old for Seattle. And it's in a little enclave close to the university. And the only people that really live around there are either people that commute to Bellevue and work in software or commute to the university and work in education. And so it's a, it's a small elementary, probably not very much bigger than Giddens. And it just kind of felt, you know, it felt diverse, but it also felt uh, small and everyone, you know, you really knew who everybody was. You knew the soccer coach, you knew the music teacher, the art teacher was the sister of a friend of mine. And she wasn't just the art teacher. She was like in the arts, in the, you know, the arts scene. And her brother is a kind of prominent member of the arts community. Mm -hmm. So it just felt like, wow, this is Seattle, but, but small microcosm. But then we moved to the suburbs. Right. And we really well, that thought, changes oh, everything. it does. And we thought, you know, people move to the suburbs for the schools. People move out to the suburbs for the schools. And we left our, our cute little school behind and we moved out to the suburbs. And the school was just not that good. It was bad, kind of. And she had a bad experience of it. Which is, it was really hard to to tell like how much of the bad experience was the school and how much of it was just the clash of <clears throat> just the, just a just a people clash but you know what is a school if not people i picked her up at school the other day and the principal came out and i said hey how's it going you know is she a discipline problem ha 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 <laughs> and he got very serious and he was like She's very loud. And we, you know, he knows her well. I know her well. And I was like, ha, 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 she is, yes. And he was like, 
she's very loud and assertive. Mm. And he was kidding, but also not kidding. And I was like, well, she sure is. <laughs> you know, you're you're the principal. I don't know what to I don't know what to tell you. From the time that she was one years old, she's been loud and assertive. And uh I a long time ago stopped thinking that that uh I had anything to do with it or could do anything about it. The the craziest thing about raising a kid where you're like, Well, look, I'm the parent here. I'm right. surely able to uh, you know, create this child so that she um fulfills my dreams and expectations of what my child will be. And it's like, no, 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 no. Your child is a person who is themselves from very young age. And I spend, you know, I've spent a lot of time saying, sweetheart, maybe if you asked them to play rather than told them to play. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, (laughs) good luck. Have fun, sweetie. Just, just so anyway, so we ended up putting her in this Montessori school, which seemed like, okay, well, maybe that's the solution. Her mother went to hippie schools in Bellingham where they all, you know, rolled around in the dirt and, and pretended to be salmon. Maybe, maybe that, you know, her mother's very comfortable with, with that environment. And I just feel like, wow, you know, this Montessori school in, on the edge of town, the school is not very big. Is this really? And for there, I'm sure that there are people, John, in the audience who are listening to this saying, what the hell is a Montessori school? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, know it, what it is because I considered sending um, my son to one and went there and realized very quickly that <clears throat> my limited uh, understanding of it is that the Montessori school prioritizes a child's own kind of learning skills and styles and presents them with opportunities to learn different things in a way that isn't super structured and that there's a lot of self leading and that their kids are sort of following the things that interest them most. And over time, the theory is that they'll still become well-rounded. They'll still learn all that they need to know because of a child's natural curiosity and interest in learning. And all they need to do is sort of provide this amazing, encouraging infrastructure uh, to the child and that the child will thrive and flourish within that if they're just left to their own devices. Every child wants to learn. Every child will explore. And and we're just giving them this fantastic garden of knowledge and interesting things to do and learn and other kids to talk to. And um, my son is kind of like a German shepherd in the sense that if left to their own devices, they go they go kind of feral, they go wild, and they need to have a lot of structure and discipline and authority, not oppressive authority, but they need to they need to respect the authority that's in place. And if if my son was left to his own devices, he would not he would not do anything. He would consume YouTube and uh and that's Really, I think what he would love to do that and, you know, actually, no, just the YouTube. (laughs) And my daughter's, uh, she's a little more like she probably could make it in a Montessori school, maybe. But they both thrive if there is some kind of like routine and structure around them. They both do really, really, really well with that. And, uh, And I just, I didn't think that it was right for them at the time. But do I have it right, or am I not describing it? The is the, do I have the philosophy wrong? No, I think you. I think that was a <clears throat> a great description of it. The this woman Maria Montessori, who was an Italian educator and and child child thinker. Yeah, <clears throat> you know she did. <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> she did have this philosophy. Everybody's got a freaking philosophy about childhood and child early child development and education. These are all 20th century phenomenon, right? In from 500,000 years ago to to 1900, um, the philosophy of children's education was uh, teach the child to do a job, 
I know there are a lot of people that listen to the show that are in education or are in social work or, right. you know, child uh, development. And I know that, you know, there, there are a lot of uh, opinions out there. Definitely my experience uh, on the internet earlier this year in conversations around childhood education and, and how, how you teach a child, uh, I heard a lot of opinions and a lot of very strongly held opinions and a lot of the, a lot of the education stuff and social work stuff and childhood stuff has taken on the theories of people feel very strongly about them. And they've taken on the vibe of religion for a lot of people because they feel like they know how to educate a child. They know how children's minds work. They know how children's souls work and they put a lot there and they're very scared. They're scared to do it wrong, but they're also scared that if they don't, that this is how we make a better world. We don't make a better world by changing our own behavior. We make a better world by changing our children. And in a way, it's a very materialistic mentality of the world, and it's a very nihilistic mentality in a, in a way because the suggestion is that we cannot change ourselves. I cannot uh, make the world a better place by changing me. The, the only hope is that the children will be better. And I, I am uh, repulsed by that oh. uh, in two ways. One of them is I feel like, no, you, you do better. Like you try harder. Don't, don't, you know, don't put it on your kid. Don't, don't put it on the way you teach your kid. Right. That's not your, that's not where your hope is. Your no. hope is get off your ass right. and do better. But the other thing is having raised a child or in the process of raising a child, you can't, there's no school or system or philosophy that's going to have really very much effect at all on your kid. Your kid comes into the world by God's grace and God is a fucking prankster and God puts kids on the earth and they are themselves and here they are and whether or not, and when I say God, of course, I mean science. But here they fucking are, right? And oh, from the, that is the truest thing you've ever said. <laughs> from the time that she arrived on this planet, I mean, of all the people you know, is there one that would be more down in the freaking dirt of trying to figure out who she is and how to, you know, and like, wow, this is a great opportunity to, you know, to raise a child into be this thing, this other thing, you know, this is what, this is what my parents did. They were going to correct their mistakes. They were going to correct their parents' mistakes. They were going to make, this is what all parents try to do. And certainly all middle-class parents and all parents that have a theory of education. Um, and a lot of it goes along with that 60s, 70s thing of like, well, you know, School just squashes kids. You hear it all the time from people. Oh, yeah. schools are just designed to create in workers. It's like, uh-huh, okay. All right, maybe, sure. But um, somehow you and I both kind of got through school and didn't become that. Yeah, right. I mean, schools are just basically desperate. And the whole idea of educating children is just a desperate Hail Mary. Yeah. How do we... What are we doing? Like we don't there there are more books about it than there are stars in the heavens. Mm-hmm. But um but it's all theory, it's all guesses, it's all and it, and it, and in a lot of ways it feels like religion to people because yeah. they have just as much passion about a thing that they cannot see or know or measure. Mm-hmm. Just as much passion about it as they do their lord and fucking savior. Mm-hmm. And it's based on just as many ghosts in the wallpaper. And I, you know, I've come up against it, well, my whole life, because I was raised in that. And I was raised in that era and that environment when educators, social workers, psychologists all believed they had the, the key and they were applying those new philosophies and dictums. They weren't even new at that point. Some of them were 70, 80 years old. And 
I was completely underserved by every single adult and every single thing that every single thing they they tried. No one listened to me. No one saw me for who I was. There was no system and still is not right. any system that could have taken me as a child, understood me and appreciated me and educated me the way that I preferred to have me come out the other side myself in its finest form. Right. Every single thing, and I'm talking about 30 years in school, everything was wrong. There was not, and and it was not for lack of trying. Every single person I encountered scrambled and threw every piece of pocket change they could find into the change counting machine of try to educate this boy. And so I'm deeply suspicious of it. Mm -hmm. And I'm deeply suspicious of anybody that tries to tell me that they know the way, anybody that tries to tell me they've got the system, anybody mm -hmm. that, you know, like deeply suspicious and yeah. hostile to them. I'm oh. hostile to them. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. Because <laughs> they are full of shit. Yeah. And there's nothing more full of shit than other kids' parents. Right. And oh, no, there's one thing more full of shit. People that don't have kids that want to give parenting or education oh, well, advice. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you can see, you know, I do get it's one of the things in public life. Most things in public life that are full of shit, I just water off a duck's back them. You know, they mm -hmm. fly over me and I go, like, sure. Okay. Fine. I'm very engaged in government. I'm very engaged in civic life. But I also know that opinions are like assholes and everyone is a fucking asshole. <laughs> and so, you know, every time a new bunch of taxes are proposed, every time a new, every time the Seattle City Council has a new spate of, of uh, civilization shaping laws that they think are going to make everything better and, they, and you can just see a mile away like, this is just going to fuck it up worse. It's just going to fuck it up worse. But, you know, you do you, it's local government, local voters. But with the with the education thing, I'm just uh, well, and I'm I water off a duck's back that stuff too. I go to the PTA meetings, I go to the things. I don't even roll my eyes, although you can hear them rolling around in my head. I don't visibly roll my eyes. I don't get into arguments with people because I feel like ultimately my daughter is my responsibility. Well, yeah. And when, when when she comes home at night, we can talk about what happened at school. And try to make sense of it. But there's no, I'm not sending her to school hoping that school's really going to do anything beyond just put information in front of her. And then we're going to work it out. But I also feel like I just need to kind of listen to her and figure out what she needs. And that's hard to do because mm -hmm. she's a little kid. They don't know how, they don't know what. They don't know anything. They don't know what, no, they don't know what they need. I was talking to her the other day, I said... Because she's been going through a phase where she's just dissatisfied by everything. And we talk a lot about, we talk, we talk around it a lot. She's, because people, you know, people throw the thing at her like, why are you dissatisfied? You have everything. You should acknowledge your privilege. Mm. And so she says to me a lot, like, I feel really Where she's guilty. hearing that in, in school? Oh, just in the in the culture, in okay, the world. Sure. It's very, you know, the, the way they used to do it with me was the little kid in China doesn't have enough to eat. You, you better yeah, finish. We your, always heard, oh, you better finish those green beans because, you know, there's a starving child in China who would love to have that. And the, the whole business of... Like uh, somehow, like the fact that the green beans that wound up on my plate, like in theory, could have gone to China somehow. Yeah, Dan. No, if only I hadn't bought them. First. No, they were stolen from the Chinese babies right. and right. brought to you. Right. And now you're ungrateful. But that, you know, that's just a that's just an earlier version of the acknowledge your privilege. It's basically there are starving children in China. It's just uh, it's been hyped up, and now people load up uh, shotguns and shoot it at each other. Mm -hmm. But she's very aware of it. It's it makes perfect sense. And so you know, she'll say, "I feel very guilty because." I know there are kids that have less than I do, and I feel awful about it, but I also don't want to eat the green beans. Right. Or whatever it is, right? And, or I, you know, I had a bad day today. And 
when I say I had a bad day today, people tend to say, why are you complaining? You are a, you're a, a very privileged girl. And she's like, you know, I don't, I don't feel like it's okay for me to have had a bad day. Right. I feel bad both because I had a bad day and feel bad because I don't feel like I'm allowed to have a bad day. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, paraphrasing. And so we talk a lot about it. And I say, the thing is that it is okay to have a bad day. Everybody has a bad day. Having a bad day is unrelated to whether or not you have green beans or not. Now, there are people who a component of their bad day is that they also didn't have enough to eat. Mm -hmm. And that is a thing to be always mindful of. But it doesn't, it's not actually related to you and your bad day. It's a thing we need to be conscious of as we go through life. And, and what it does is allow us to have empathy. We should never look at someone and say, God, why are they so X, Y, or Z? That's not how we look at other people because we don't know what their bad day consists of. But your bad day is yours. And it's not, you don't, you don't, you don't need to feel bad about it. It's not related to that. People right. make that connection and it's a, it's, it's a wrong connection to make. But the other day in talking to her, I was like, it feels like every day you have a, a series of experiences. But when you bring your day home to me and tell me about it, you kind of list all the things that went wrong. Do you feel... Like there is a corresponding list of things that went right and you're, you're more interested in the things that went wrong or those things that went wrong stand out to you more. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Could you also have a list of things that went right? How would you think about that? And she was like, Hmm, well, you know, it is easier for me to be dissatisfied And we've talked about it several times. And last night she said, I tried all day just to think of whenever I felt like something was going wrong, I tried to think of the way that it was going right. Mm -mm. This is very wise for a 10-year-old. Well, she's working on it, right? But she said, but then the part of me that was looking at it going wrong Mm -hmm said, and this is the first time she's ever indicated that she had voices in her head or that she had a conversation internally. She's never, I've looked for it for her whole life. I've never heard it. Never heard any indication of it. But last night she said, I tried to think of all the things that were going right. And the part of me that saw the things that were going wrong thought that I was being corny. Hmm. And I said, tell me more about that. And she said, it just sounded like, it just sounded like the voice that was trying to find all the good things was like a little kid voice, like everything's good. And I felt like that was a very corny voice. And I said, so do you feel like the voice that is telling you that things, you know, are finding the things that are kind of a drag? Do you feel like that voice is more real? or more wise or smarter. And she said, well, I do, you know, she was, she, she talked a little bit about the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. But then she said, um, she, she started to question me like, well, what if things are bad? And I was like, well, things are can be she was like i mean what if what if i want to be upset and i was like you you have every right to be upset if you want to be upset Mm -hmm. she said well you know what if and we and we talked all around this this idea of like because i've noticed that her her take now is just, she's just unsatisfied. And I remember, I don't, I, I didn't feel that way at, at 10. 
But I did feel that way at 27. And I felt that way at 37 and 47. Right. I recognized the, I recognized the mind. Mm-hmm. And I'm also always working on how do I look at, at, you know, at the fact that uh, my refrigerator is empty and see it as a positive opportunity to fill it with good food. <laughs> this is your chance to, you know, change your diet and go get, it's, you know, you're starting <laughs> yeah. from scratch. So only wholesome whole food products. This is it. Yeah. This is, the, my this is opportunity. what you've been waiting for. Yeah. I'm looking around my room here and it's like the house is, is a mess. It's a great opportunity to clean it. Yes. But also just internally, right? I want to have the voice in my head that says, you know what? You're doing good. You're a good guy and you're doing good. You're, you're, you're trying to help people. You're trying to, to be a good thing in the world. You don't always succeed. And a lot of the stuff you do is not, is not trying to be good or bad. You're just trying to get from here to there. Or you're just trying to, you know, get it, get the bills paid. And that's neither good nor bad. And you can't, you shouldn't judge, you shouldn't judge yourself constantly. Like, let it go. Just, just, just be glad, be glad. And then that voice in me is like, God, you're so corny. Don't you see that you're not good? That you're not doing what you could. You're not doing enough. That's the voice. You're not doing enough. And my daughter has doesn't have a like, you're not doing enough. She definitely looks at me and goes, you're not doing enough. Mm-hmm. You're not doing enough because you haven't taken me to wild waves. <laughs> and I'm like, if I took you to wild waves every single day, would uh-huh. that be enough? Yeah. Or would the third day at wild waves, would you find a reason that it wasn't good? I, I can tell you right now, the first day at wild waves, you would find a reason it wasn't the best day at wild waves. And so, you know, trying to feed the, that, that uh, maw trying to just throw hams into the the dissatisfied volcano mouth where you're like here's another ham will you please stop erupting and it's like you can there are not enough hams in the world to keep that volcano from erupting that's not what it's it thinks it wants hams but it doesn't want hams and trying to talk to her about it at age 10 and say and you know and somewhat thinking like, I've known for a long time that there was an opportunity somewhere in high school for an adult with with a, with a vision, for an adult with a vision, not a vision, but with vision, to have pulled me aside and said, look, I'm going to speak honestly with you for five minutes and then never again, but for five minutes, I'm going to tell you that you're fine, you're going to do fine. You're smart and you are considerate and you have and you have empathy. Beyond that, there's nothing the schools can really do for you. Right. <laughs> and you're smart and so keep reading books and keep trying to do good and get through school. Uh, but school isn't for you. I mean, being educated is for you. It's just unfortunate that you have to go to school, you know, that you're, that you're forced to go to school because it's not for you, but you're going to be fine. That's the thing. Not doing well in school, not fitting in, in school, not being what all these grownups want you to be. Doesn't matter. It's not important. Kids so, should hear that every day. I, I try to express the same kind of thing to my kids. Like when they're like, Oh, this, I'm like, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but like, none of this matters. Like, this doesn't matter. Like, none of this is important. Like, well, I got to, you know, I got to do this project. I'm like, do you? I mean, I know you have to for the teacher, but do you as a human being really need to do it? No, you need to do it. Your student self needs to do it because you have this short term goal of finish eighth grade. But like, do you really need to? No, you don't need to do it. What you need to do is you need to sleep. You need to eat. You know, you need to move. But this thing is like it's temporary. Like it doesn't really matter. It's not real. Yeah, it's a construct. Yeah. Well, it's not it's just not it's not this isn't how we live as adults 
and it isn't, and there will come a day. It's not just a question of when you're an adult, you get to eat ice cream. It's like when you're an adult, you get to explore the world, explore it, explore it. it and, this, and this has nothing to do with it. School just doesn't. It's just, well, it's just a place where grownups are trying to make the world a better place by fucking with you. <laughs> Yeah, and and then if that grown up in 1982 had said okay and held out their hand for me to shake, and we sh- shook hands, and then they'd said okay, now I'm back to being a grown up in this world, and you're in big trouble, Mister Wink. I would have gone, wow, okay, okay, got it. I might have even done better in school, but. It felt like, well, it felt rightly like every adult in the world was gaslighting me constantly because it was so obvious none of this was real and no one ever said it. No one said it. In any book I read, even, no one said it. I mean, there were a lot of books about people that were where the main character of the book was like, none of this is real. But somehow that character didn't, you know, Holden Caulfield doesn't win, right? That there's not a, um, there's very little triumph. Every once in a while you get a Salvador Dali or something where it's like, wow, he's definitely didn't think it was real. He didn't think the world was real. But, um, but most of the time, the people you hear from, even the ones who were like, I did it my own way and got into Harvard. It's like, hmm, Harvard <laughs> though, right? Like you got to, you went through heart, you went through the, the aperture of Harvard. So you did it. The, you actually did the thing that they say, you know, you, you made it more real by virtue of saying that you did it your own way. But in the end, all that did was get you to Harvard. The number of people, I mean, one of the smartest guys I knew in high school was a kid named James Swainson. And James was, James came from a poor family. They, you know, they lived in a trailer park. And in Alaska, you know, that's a, that's a, that can be a cold and, um, I mean, you're living on the edge, right? In a trailer park in Alaska, because sometimes the wind is strong and they blow those trailers. The wind will pick up, just picks them up. Move, you know, your trailer <laughs> moves ten, fifteen feet. Like, where? How'd that move? The wind did that. No, the trailer moves one hundred and fifty yards. Jeez. You know, just picks up and flies. Yeah. Um, but James was like so smart, and he was he was punk rock because yeah. that's that felt like the place that you went if you were smart and poor. And punk rock did a number on him, um, the drugs and the and that and the particular version of punk that was popular at the time, which was very much. Uh, it wasn't just anti-authoritarian; it was it was nihilistic, and the drugs and so forth. And eventually, you know, there it became clear even in high school that although James was one of the smartest kids, he was not. He was out first out of the orbit of smart kids as the smart kids prepared to go to college. And James realized that that was probably not, well, what financially wasn't an option, but also kind of socially wasn't. He was punk now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then little by little, he just fell out of the side door um, and went his own way and lived a, lived a exciting and, and, uh, and ultimately, you know, drugs are a problem. Uh, they were for me. Um, but watching the kid, the smart kids from our high school go on to lofty, their lofty heights, James is just as smart as any of them. Smarter. And the world underserved him, you know, didn't, there was no way he was going to fit into high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he he didn't have, I guess, my middle class resources to not fit into high school and somehow still get through life to the point that I could 
plant my feet somewhere. And I mean, the, the number of times I could have OD'd is as, as long as my arm. And I didn't, and a lot of that's luck. But, you know, there was something in me that always believed that there was a place for me in the world. And not just a place where I was propping up some wall, but like my own place. Right. And I don't know, you know, there, there's a part of me right now that's embarking into that period of my daughter's life where I've heard a lot of stories from other parents. I have a good friend right now who's going through something very traumatic with his teenage daughter where her health's on the line and it's all, you know, uh, it's all mind war stuff. It's mm. all, it's all culture, mind, body terrors. And watching my kid go, you know, take this first step to like, Oh, you, you, you don't have an uncomplicated mind. You know, what a gift that would be to have a kid who was just like, well, I love soccer and I love K-pop. And between soccer and K-pop, I'm covered. And my kid is like, soccer sucks and K-pop sucks. I'm like, okay, whoo, <laughs> shit. <laughs> I know the feeling. Yeah. And I can't. Yeah, there's no getting, there's no, there's no simple like, sit down, honey, and let's have a talk about positivity that's going to get anywhere close to the heart of that. And I'm not trying to make her better than I was. And I don't think the world is going to be a better place if we teach kids, um, well, you know, I don't think, I don't think that we can, that we can, um, address climate change and inequality by choosing a good elementary school or by hammering these ideas into kids. I'm, and, and I don't know what I'm doing, right? I don't know what I'm doing at all. I'm trying to challenge her. On one hand, because yeah, she would, she doesn't have YouTube, but she would wake up every day and eat goldfish and read Archie comics until nightfall. And if I said, give me those Archie comics, those are empty calories. She would hand them all over and then she would go read Garfield. <laughs> and I'm like, Garfield? <laughs> And she says, all these Garfield books belong to you. So who are you to tell me I can't read Garfield? They're all your Garfield books. And I'm like, well, I had Garfield books, ironically. And she's like, you did not. You loved Garfield. And I'm like, all right, all right. I loved Garfield. Give me those Garfield books. You can't just read Garfield books. She would hand them over, and then she would go find my Fantagraphics collections of 1950s Peanuts comics, and she would read those and eat goldfish until the sun went down. I Just reading 1950s Peanuts has probably given her as much of an education as the entire Montessori program because she has that – she has a – she often will reply to me, and I think – why, what, what is that voice she's using? It feels very familiar. I don't, I don't mean like tone of voice. I mean like, like literary voice. And I'll sit and think about it. She'll say something to me and I'm being like, oh my God, that is just exactly what Lucy Van Pelt would have said to Charlie Brown in that same situation. <laughs> and then sometimes she speaks to me in the voice of Charlie Brown. Oh. And I'm like, how do you have this much, um, like neurotic energy. <laughs> we don't live in New York city. Like how, are, how are you, how do you have like the neuroses of Woody Allen? Yeah, I was going to say he almost said Woody Allen. Um, 
And it's like, oh, because she's, to a certain extent, is using both Charles Schultz's and John Davis's, uh, like, she, she'll process uh, information and go, what would Garfield say here? Well, Garfield, at this moment, would knock a plate, knock a pan of lasagna off the off the kitchen table and blame it on Odie. Or, you know, like right now, Lucy would charge Charlie Brown five cents, and it's like, oh no, what have I done? Mm-hmm. What should I have given her more positive comics? What even are those? Oh wait, the the dark girl voice in my head goes, ugh, those positive comics. Yuck, they're so. Corny. 